0: Hey everybody, Chris here from the Mad Scientist Podcast. If you're looking for an excellent philosophy podcast, here's the show for you. The Partially Examined Life is a philosophical podcast by four guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living. For each episode, they pick a text and chat about it with some balance between insight and flippancy. You don't have to know any philosophy or have even read the text they're discussing talking about to follow and enjoy. With a 13-year-plus catalog of episodes, The Partially Examined Life has probably covered any philosophical topic you're interested in, from practical ethics to the theoretical foundations of science. They go deep into the history of philosophy while making it personal and funny. If you enjoy our show, I really think you're going to get a kick out of The Partially Examined Life. Join the over 45 million downloads already pondering with The Partially Examined Life. Find new episodes wherever you stream your podcasts or at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Listeners, today I am joined by Melanie Tresik-King, who has become one of my favorite fellow skeptics here on Twitter and online. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. It's been, I feel like it's been months, which it has been months since I said you should come on the podcast. So I'm really glad it's finally happened. Uh, welcome to the show. Tell listeners a little bit about yourself, please.
1: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I love your podcast. Uh, it was one of my entry points actually into to skepticism. Um, really short about me, I suppose. Uh, so my background is plant ecology. And uh, when I moved to Massachusetts from the Midwest, uh, I got a job teaching at a community college. And I love teaching at a community college. Um, I teach mostly non-sci- uh, uh, non-science majors classes. So these are people who don't want to be scientists when they grow up and the course that everybody around the country tends to take for their gen ed science is intro bio. And I was teaching intro bio and I love biology and I kept trying to make it interesting. And I, at some point between like mitosis and protein synthesis, I was like, you know what, I'm not quite sure this is what students need for the rest of their lives. So I asked the college if I could do something different. And to their credit, they let me. Uh, we canceled intro bio because I made the case that it was not what people uh, what would prepare uh, students for. A science-based world. And I, um, created a course that teaches skills, not facts. So critical thinking, information, literacy, science, literacy. Um, and the whole point is like, if I have a semester to teach the average person, what they should know about what science is and how it works, this is my best attempt to do that. So I use a lot of pseudoscience in class, which is why, you know, I, I love your, your podcast. Um, obviously, uh, skepticism. Um, I also like, uh, I give students a a toolkit and I um, have them practice using it. And I use a lot of inoculation theory. So I have students create misinformation uh, to be able to learn uh, misinformation. So that's the short end. I am finishing my semester and I am super happy about it. Uh, But hopefully the students are better prepared for understanding their world.
0: I think what you're doing is, I mean, it's exactly what we wanted to do when we started the show, was really, again, use pseudoscience, use these stories to show people how to think about science versus, like you said, again, you know, mitosis, I mean... Uh, come on, you know, like, you know, and, and I get it's important. And I have a lot of friends who are biology teachers and they'll kill me for saying that. I don't think, you know, I don't really think students need to know a whole lot about mitochondria. You know I mean? These things are not going to come up in their everyday lives, but what will come up, like you said, is science literacy. So give, give listeners a little bit of background on inoculation theory. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. Um, actually, if I, if I can just back up to what you said, something there, because, um, look, as a biologist, I think these things are important, too. But I think how we present science is really disingenuous, because most textbooks, like the textbooks that I was using, six to 800 pages, Okay, because I use different textbooks. So let's say it's a 600-page textbook. The scientific method is in the first chapter, and it's a few pages and it's like a recipe, right? You observe and you make a hypothesis and you test it, of course, with a controlled experiment because that's how all science is done. Uh and then in the end you did a science and then the textbook is full of a bunch of things they have to memorize. And I look if you want to know the stages of mitosis, you can look it up. It's really easy. The question is what does it mean? How is this useful? Like how did we learn those things? Um so uh, then to answer your question, um, inoculation theory um, is the idea that uh, it, it basically applies um, the the concept of vaccination to uh, misinformation. So like with a vaccine, if we expose people to bits of misinformation, or sorry, bits of a, a virus or a bacterium, um, then their immune system learns to recognize it. And then when they're exposed to it in the real world, it can better fight it off. Inoculation theory works something similar. So if you expose people to bits of misinformation, then they build up antibodies against that misinformation so that when they see it in the real world, they're better able to identify it. Um, Carl Sagan has, you know, Carl Sagan has this great quote. um, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something like, um, if we teach people only the findings of science and not the method, How can the average person understand the difference between science and pseudoscience? So that's why I use pseudoscience. And then to take that further, a great way to inoculate them against pseudoscience is to use these activities. I am a huge fan of what's called active inoculation, where um, students create the misinformation. And so by creating misinformation, they learn the techniques that that misinformation uses, So in the real world, they can see it and go, oh, hey, like I I made that misinformation. So they've got the antibodies against it and they're resistant to it.
0: It's an interesting kind of extension of something that itself ended up becoming a pseudoscience with memetics. Yeah, this idea that memes, you know, Richard Dawkins in The Selfish Gene put, put this idea out there of memes existing in listeners, We've talked about memes quite a bit, and even this idea in The Selfish Gene of a meme being sort of the, if you think that human evolution has sort of not stopped because we're always evolving, but basically human evolution has been um, essentially separated effectively from biological determinism, then now our social evolution is more important than our biological evolution for what human society does. And so Dawkins sort of proposed this idea of a meme which was this sort of self-replicating social change agent, just like a gene would be for evolution. And of course that created a whole uh, pseudoscience of its own with, you know, biological psychology and uh, evolutionary psychology and whatever. But anyways, the idea though of inoculation theory of this, you teach somebody how, so we, we take different approaches, obviously right on the show. We talk about, how others have made these sorts of fakes in the past or how these ideas, these unscientific ideas have propagated. What's so exciting about what you do is you actually give people the ability to be like, listen, well, we're going to, you're going to make one, (laughs) you know, you're going to make a, um, you're going to make a fake and you're going to see how easy it is to get out there. And it's something honestly that we've, We've toyed with a lot. We've thought about, like, Marie and I would make up characters and, you know, um, get really important in, like, you know, the missing 4011 movement or something, right? Or, like, you know, because it'd be, it, it, again, anyone who's been part of these groups in kind of a way, like, you know, I tried to do with the UFO world or whatever, knows it's pretty easy to infiltrate. Right? They're not very careful. It's just so fascinating. So one of the ways that, one of the things that, you've created that I think is really effective and useful. It's the idea of floater, right? This toolkit for how to evaluate claims. Do you
1: want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, when you ask somebody to think critically and evaluate a claim, like how do you even start? How do I approach something like that? And so, um, you know, even if you ask, you know, 10 people who, even teach critical thinking, what is critical thinking, you're gonna get 10 different answers. So um, what I wanted to do was um, provide students with a toolkit that would help them uh, when they're faced with a claim in real life, how can I think through this claim? Um, And I made an acronym that is uh, kind of a, a summary of major concepts of critical thinking and scientific reasoning. So, and gave it a handy acronym, FLOATER, to save yourself from drowning in misinformation, right? So, um, the F stands for falsifiability in that, is there a way to test this claim? Is there a way to potentially prove it wrong? Or is it vague? Or is it supernatural? Or is it just an opinion? What what is this claim? Um, If it's not a falsifiable claim, then you need to proceed with caution because evidence, we think we have evidence for claims that are unfalsifiable, but... Evidence for Unfalsified bioclaims Claims is basically meaningless because like, you can't prove it wrong. Any evidence for it doesn't matter. Um, L stands for logic. Claims must be logical. So I teach students about the different types of arguments, um, inductive and deductive, and the difference between those and how to evaluate arguments. What is the structure of the argument? Um, The premises and the conclusion. And I I give students about um, 12 to 18 over the course of the semester, logical fallacies to watch out for. Uh, You know, some of them are really common, like health pseudoscience, we just finished that. Um, Appeal to nature and appeal to tradition and appeal to the masses and appeal to authority and the use of anecdotes, right? All of that is just, it's so obvious, right? So once they can see that. Um, The O stands for objectivity. Uh, basically, we have to be honest with ourselves when evaluating claims. And honestly, honestly, um, this is the most difficult rule because no one can fool us like we can. That Feynman quote, um, you are the easiest person to fool. And we really Um, are. It's like we have something that we want to believe or don't want to believe. And so we can always find evidence to support what we want or don't want to believe and now we can easily go online and find even more evidence for it and we can find other people who believe the same thing but that doesn't mean those claims are true. So we have to be honest with ourselves. The A stands for alternative explanations. How else might we explain what it is that we're seeing? So try to propose as many different ways, the uh, falsifiable explanations for our observations. The more the better. Um, Carl Sagan called these multiple working hypotheses. Uh, and then try to disprove them. Which one has the most evidence? Which one is the most likely? Maybe apply Occam's razor. Which one is the most likely? Um, the T stands for tentative conclusions, which is um, a reminder that in science, all of our explanations should be tentative. It doesn't mean we don't know anything but it does mean we don't ever reach 100% certainty. And honestly, that that, um, idea of proportioning our acceptance of a claim to the available evidence is really, uh, it's a new concept for most people because we think something is true or false. We believe it or we don't. Instead of proportioning, how sure am I of this? I don't know, 85%. Great, what would convince me otherwise? Okay, can I find that? Let me move my confidence along that scale. Um, The E stands for evidence. Basically, how good is the evidence? Is the evidence sufficient? If it's an extraordinary claim, it needs extraordinary evidence. Does it come from a reliable source? Is it anecdotal? Um, And then the R stands for replicability. So can we reproduce the evidence? So basically then when my students are, you know, new claim, okay, let me start at the beginning. Can I even test this claim? Right. And then work through the 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 different rules of floater um, to try and evaluate, hopefully, as many claims that may come their way.
0: It's a really smart way of putting the story of not only just even the story of how to rep, how to verify claims, but really embedded within it is the story of kind of science, you know, I mean, this is the way that science happens. This is the way that science is built. And especially that portion you talked about with the tentativeness of the conclusion, right? Or the the uh, what's the word? The scale of confidence of the conclusion. It's probably one of the hardest things to get students away from is this thought. Because I just I actually just did an interview on another podcast where the person interviewing me was a biology teacher for a time. And they were mentioning, you know, it's so hard when you have to tell your students lies or on un- or half truths at the beginning of the year. Something like, you know, well, all what the example they gave. I'm really bad at biology, so I'd know nothing. But the example they gave was something like, you know, all um all plant cells have something, right? So all plant cells are X. And he was like, "That's not true, though. Not all plant cells have this. There's lots of different plant cells." And so he was like, you know, at the beginning of the year, you teach students this thing, and then by the time they get to later schooling in biology, you're basically tearing down stuff you taught them was true before and trying to make these claims. And, th- and what I said to him was, well, I don't think it really matters if students know that all that much about the plant cell. Right. What you should be teaching them is science changes based on history and evidence and what we know and what we don't know and what we can prove. And so although at one time we thought all plant cells were like this, now we know, you know, it it's but it's such a hard concept for people, because like you said, we want things to be yes or no, black or white. How effective. I guess, again, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to gauge your own success, I guess. I feel like this would be extremely effective to students. Do you find it to be very effective? What are what are the biggest complaints? What are the things, I guess, that you find that students sort of say, well, wait a second, that doesn't work for me?
1: Okay, that is an amazing question. Um, okay, let me back up for a second, though. So um, I, I feel for the biology teacher because we... <laughs> have to oversimplify. Yes. Well, that's the problem, right? You can't start off with
0: in physics. We get this with physics. We even do this on the show with episodes where we're like, all right, we're going to talk about time travel. Well, we need to start a whole year long series on intro physics because it's the only way this will make any damn sense. Yeah, you feel for him, right? Of course.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and everything that we do is to some level an oversimplification. It's always more complicated than we think it is. And anytime you oversimplify by definition, something is going to be wrong. Um, but that said, what I find, um, and, and part of this answer is coming from the amount of time I spend online these days. (laughs) So the comment, um, one of the major misconceptions about science is that science proves science is based in facts and science has laws and principles. And no, actually a lot of that is not true. Um, Science does not result in proof. Uh, Science has facts, but facts are basically those things that the scientific community agrees are true, but they can change. So back to my complaint about those biology textbooks where you start with the scientific method that is a drastic oversimplification at best and wrong at worst. And then you proceed to give them a bunch of things that they have to memorize. And so that person then leaves that class and for the rest of their life, like a new pandemic, for example, and the experts are saying, we don't need to ask. We do need to mask. Well, we should mask in these situations. And they're like, wait a minute. You're always changing your minds. You don't know anything. Actually, that's how science works. Science at its core is a constant attempt to reduce uncertainty. It's asymptotic, we never get to 100% certainty. So as we learn more, we reduce our uncertainty, but that's the best that we can do. And I think part of it is, so the how we teach science in that it's this black or white, yes or no, true or false. And part of it is just human nature. We don't like uncertainty, it's uncomfortable, right? We want answers and so As humans, the best system we have devised at coming up with at finding what the truth is, is science. And yet science is telling us, we're never really gonna know for sure. We should always leave ourselves open to changing our minds. That can be really uncomfortable. Now, online, I have a real problem, and I'm sure you do too. Um, In my class, I have um, the benefit of having students captive for four months. <laughs> like they have, they have to stick with me. They want a grade, they want the credit. So for four months, they have to be along for this ride and then listen to all of it. But um, the conversations on social media are a whole lot more difficult. And especially if we go back to the O of objectivity, when there's something we really want to believe or something we really don't believe, don't want to believe, then we go back to those things that we think we know about science.
0: to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I would kill for the ability to grade the people on Twitter. I mean, that would be phenomenal. The cha- oh, You're right. It's the... You know, the way that I like to talk about it to to young students or to people, any really anyone, is science is just a tool for learning about the world. The If you think the world has truths about it, science is one way of learning about those truths. But, you know, and it, it's so fascinating when you get to the core of it, really. Science started, you know, with Hume and with... Uh, the early kind of naturalist philosophers, it was a response against the dogmatism of religious conviction of things are true or false always, you know? So it's so funny that now we've basically sort of in the, in the consciousness of people shifted back to, we've just sort of replaced for some people in their minds, we've replaced sort of religious conviction with conviction in science and not it's, it's, the the wording there sounds wrong, and it's not really what I mean. I guess people like you said, people want certainty. They used to put that certainty into they used to think that religious figures had that certainty for them. And today, I think for a lot of people, they don't think that religious certainty is really all that there, but they want to think that scientific certainty business certainty, governmental certainty, whatever exists. And so when it doesn't work that way, like you said, they sort of get, you know, real angry and start loading up into trucks or whatever and go into the Canadian capital. You know, it's just super weird. The... (sighs) Twitter is an interesting case, because what you try to do... (laughs) Twitter is interesting and horrible, and I... God, I... Sometimes I hate it, but then we, we met through Twitter, so I can't really be that mad, but... You know, it is uh, like you said, Twitter is a Twitter is funny because people are already. Again, you talk about inoculation theory and inoculation works worse if the person's already infected and Twitter. It's like, you know, going into the (laughs) going into the den of the illness (laughs) in some ways, for us or for me, that's always been the area where I like to get myself into trouble. I guess is getting into these groups where people already believe this stuff and understanding well why and how do we fix it and whatever. You go after people, I think more effectively. Uh, you're also nicer to people than I am. I think so. That probably also helps. But going after people when they're younger, but see that's that's one of the challenges though, right? We need a teacher like you in every school. Right. That like we need people who are teaching this stuff in every school to make a dent, to really make an effect. On the other hand, though, pseudoscience, conspiracy theory, whatever. Has, you know, it's everywhere, you know, it has media, it has entertainment, it has movies and TV and the History Channel and, you know, the science, quote unquote, channel and all these other places. One of my frustrations is a young skeptic, although I don't know how young I am anymore, one of my frustrations, though, as a skeptic, I guess, is it sort of feels like s- skeptics are not taking the active approach that you are, which I think is so important. What do you think people could do in their own lives or like, I don't know, what do you think we should do? How
1: how, how do we fix this, Melanie? How do we fix this? If I am queen of the world, what would I yes, do? Yes, there we go. <laughs> oh gosh if I could only have the answer to that question like I I do think how we teach science has a problem Mm -hmm. um and I say that as someone who knows at this point that I taught science that way and I feel like I failed students Mm. um and so that's my own journey to how I got to where I am. Um, mm-hmm. but the system asks educators to teach students subject content mm-hmm. that they can then pass certain exams as opposed to teaching them how science works. I personally did not um find that I didn't we never know what we don't know until we know something. Um sure. and I didn't know that I didn't know a lot about how the process of science works. I think even for science majors, we assume that they're going to pick up the philosophy of science. And why the overall process of science works just through the ether, like, okay, now you're a graduate student. Now you're going to do your own research, but that still doesn't mean that you understand how that system works let alone how we teach those who are not going to be scientists when we grow up. So one of the first things that I would do is I would address this kind of content. I would focus on the process of science um, and using pseudoscience and science denial and getting students to think critically about these things down to middle school. um, I'm trying to work more with educators to get this content into high schools and especially middle schools because even college is kind of late. Um, The other thing, um, just for educators out there, um, and anyone in a position to teach this kind of thing, um, one of the things that I find that's really effective is to not start with content that is emotionally or identity triggering. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I start class with witches. Literally day one, I give students a personality assessment. And we can talk about that too, if you like. I basically fool students. Um, but then we talk about witches. I give them a background of the witch trials of the, the of Europe. Um, people thought that uh, witches were casting spells that caused birth defects and that killed crops and that caused storms and so on. Okay, what was their evidence? They were really convinced. Obviously, they were so convinced. They were killing hundreds of thousands of people. Um, their evidence was, uh, accusing someone or, um, admitting to being a witch under torture. And then I show students the torture devices, the breast ripper and the hot coals and the swimming test and all of those kinds of things. And students can say, like most of my students don't believe in witches, right? So they can... They can look at that and go, wow, they were really sure. Like they felt they had knowledge. They felt very strongly that they were right. What was their evidence? And was that good evidence? My goal, of course, is to get them to think about their own beliefs that way. But if I went in with vaccines or with evolution or with um, you know acupuncture or whatever it is that might be really triggering to that individual, they wouldn't hear me. And so I like to think of it like a spectrum where in the Mm -hmm. middle, the spectrum is the um, like ideological spectrum. And we're going to do identity beliefs associated with different parts of that spectrum. You know, on the far left, we might have things like, you know, Reiki and GMOs are bad and Mm -hmm. uh, some vaccine things. And on the right, we have things like climate change and evolution and all of this of course is pre COVID because that skewed the whole thing. I start in the middle, which is, um, and then I move on to like ghosts, and then I move on to, um, psychic mediums. And like I move each direction on the spectrum little bits at a time. I don't actually even have to address directly something like climate change. Because by the time I get to the end of the semester, students have learned these techniques. They've learned about the process of science. They've learned why a consensus is reliable. And so they're actually have evidence to support. They're more accepting of those things, even if I haven't directly taught them. Not as soon as someone's identity is triggered, then they're unable to objectively evaluate claims. So I would, I would do that as well. And I just, One other thing I have to say based on what you said, I appreciate you telling me that I was nice. It is really hard to be nice sometimes, especially when people are coming at you. Um, I like to think of my audience, and I, I joke about this, I call them the normals. So like on a bell curve, they are, you know, the one side of the curve doesn't need me. The other side of the curve is probably not convincible, at least not with the time and energy that I have. So I like to stick with those in the middle of the bell curve that I think are swayable. I try to use those techniques that we've talked about to try and um, get them to think about thinking critically and hopefully internalizing some of that and thinking about their own beliefs. Um, but yeah, I, I, I am, um, I try to avoid you, you go right in the trenches and <laughs> I both admire that. And like, I, I, I don't know how you do that.
0: <laughs> I am a, I, I just I just hate myself so much. It's just so easy to go. like it. it ah, the. Part of it's funny, I had I had a bit of a sort of, I guess, a moment like what you're saying, where I was like, who am I doing this for? Right. I was on a show. I used to do a radio show where I was supposed to be kind of the skeptic. Right. On this really, really far deep in the weeds, wacky UFO show, you know, like the like, it wasn't even just like UFOs was the least crazy thing that was talked about and believed, you know, UFOs was like at the, you know, UFOs was like, we're talking, getting out of the hard science here now. Right. Like we're talking about, you know, all kinds of wacky stuff. And I had it. I was arguing with a guy who this guy claimed that. You know, that famous Roswell UFO, the alien video that came out in the 90s, right? Or in the 2000s, I guess you should say. That's like a very well-known hoax. The guy that hoaxed it has come out and even shown the film set and everything. And, you know, it's very well documented that it's a hoax. Wasn't there a TV program about that? It was a TV program. Yes. Yes. So there was there was the original TV program about the actual thing itself on Fox. And then... There was the documentary recently, relatively recently, last couple of years, about how they faked it. And this guy was arguing with me because a UFO Twitter person had come up with a little document that seemed to say that parts of that video was real. It was frames of real video. And I was saying, Well, we but the guy, the director of it has come out and been like, I've shot that. Here's the reels, and I have the here's the alien, and he's, you know, got the model, and like we we know what happened here. And the guy was arguing with me that, well, even if it's just a single frame of that is real. Then it all has is real. We have to accept it, because what if a single frame of it is real? And after the show, I remember telling my wife, I was like, wow, I think I really I think I did. I actually think I made people believe science less in that argument because I was arguing with this guy. And I felt like I had done so poorly in the interview, but then over the next week, I was getting emails from people saying, "Oh my God, you did great! I really believe you know you convinced me. You made me you know see how crazy this idea was and everything else." And so I was like, "Oh, those are the people who don't usually attack me on Twitter. These are the normal people who who do listen to these programs, but..." take it in but even that is such a hard they're such a quiet group if only they were more radicalized on Twitter it would be easier it's so challenging though uh, anyways
1: I will occasionally find someone if, if someone if I think they're in good faith then I will engage with them because we mm. are all here to learn um But I always I try to keep in mind that there are a lot of people watching. Yes, who are not that person, and I'm not necessarily talking to the person. I'm talking to everyone who's watching, who's swayable. Exactly,
0: and that's the I think the part that, at least in my view, we really have sort of we've almost self segregated ourselves as skeptics or as scientists is whatever we want to call ourselves, where we sort of don't want to get. We don't want to be associated with things like, you know, um, I mean, I'll give you an example, the Galileo project, right, which I was a part of for a little bit there. I I left, but I was part of that with Seth Shostak and with, um, you know, other uh, other folks, just kind of random scientists, all kinds of all kinds of people, whatever. And a lot of other skeptics didn't want to be involved because this was a UFO thing, right? This was crazy. Why would you want to be involved in this? And it's like, well, because they're going to get a lot of attention. And if we don't have somebody there pushing back, that <laughs> it's all it's going to seem like is that these people are telling the truth. Yeah.
1: The problem is the skeptic ends up looking like the... Um, negative debunker (laughs) mind right um and none of those things are true of course but you know the token skeptic often gets framed that way you know i cover ufos in class um with ghosts um so i am after covering witches i move on to um one of the most important aspects of the semester, I think, one of the most important concepts, which is uh, the limits of perception and memory. Um, like most of us have been conditioned, I think, either through evolution or socialization, that our personal experiences are the best way to know something. Right? I I know goes are real because I saw one. You know, I know homeopathy works because I tried it and I felt better. And that seems pretty foolproof to a lot of people. And so um, my goal is actually to convince students that their personal experiences are not necessarily very trustworthy when it comes to those kinds of things. And especially if we have a pre-existing bias, like we see what we expect to see. We see what we believe, we see what we expect to see. So, um, you know, I, I I have this whole lecture with different um, 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 audio and visual illusions and we talk about, you know, constancies and um, the flaws in our memory. Most people think our memory works like recording devices, right? All of those things are just really basic misconceptions about how our brains work, but I can't counter I know it's true because I saw it. Unless I address, that's actually not true. Um, It's really such a fundamental thing. I I find myself in other classes where I don't, um, I also teach environmental science, where I don't start with that. Um, If I don't start with why we need science, then I don't... Let me back up for a second. So most science classes start with the process of science and then they go into what we've learned. But if you don't build up a justification for why we need science in the first place, for how biased we are and how irrational and how um, our perception and memory are flawed and how easily we are convinced of something. If we don't talk about that first, why do we need science at all? Like, why is science more reliable than Mm I saw it? And so, you know, UFOs are a great case study for that. Look, at this point, how many billions of cell phones are there on this planet? And for how long? And those best that we have is like something in the sky that I don't know what it is. Okay. Well, of course there's gonna be things in the sky we don't know what they are, but it doesn't mean that they're aliens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on,
0: don't say that. Yeah, the it's so you're you know, you're bang on there. It, It almost, it's funny, I often, I wonder this sometimes about sort of the, the over-reliance or not really over-reliance, I guess, the real emphasis on STEM education, right? That we need to create this generation of like little engineering automatons who are going to go out there and build the next electric vehicle and whatever, but we ignore all of the classics education that does lay the framework- (laughs) For why all of that stuff matters. You know, I mean I think I grew up we're we we're sort of in the generation where it was just starting that whole big push towards STEM, right? But at least still there was some part of my education, at least that I think back to, where we did read philosophy as as middle schoolers a little bit and we Learn these things and some of this idea of philosophy and history and, you know, the context for science. But then I look at kids today that I I know of through my family and whatever. And the Pokemon card league where I spend all my free time. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's they don't learn any of that. It's just facts. So, yeah, it's sort of a weird like we need to go back to that earlier way of, like you said, teaching well, why do things this way? Why? Why use science in the first place? It's so important. Well, it, listen, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Seriously, listeners of the show, go check out, uh, check out the website. It's thinkingispower.com. Um, also on Twitter, Thinking is Power. It has access to all of the resources, the the ideas, the floater toolkit, all of that good stuff there. Please, please, please check it out. It is so important, especially if you're an educator. If you have kids, right? If you've listened to our show and think, I don't know, that Chris and Marie, they're a little bit too edgy for my kids right now. They curse a lot. But, um, you know, what can I give them? This is perfect. Thank you so much. Where, where else can people find you? Anything else you want to tell our listeners about?
1: Uh, I'm on Facebook as well, at Thinking Powers as well. Um, The website, if I just might, um, I see a shameless plug here, but since you walked me to it. um, (laughs) So the website I've organized by, um, I started the website because uh, there was not a textbook for my students. This was relatively um, newish content organized in a way that was a little bit different. So I wrote things for them on the website. There is a foundations page and the foundations is the foundations of the course. Um, And so. It's intended to walk through, but you can pick and choose as you like. But it's, you know, from the beginning of the course to the end, there's a topics page that uses the concepts from foundations and explores things like ghosts and psychics and alternative medicine and so on. And there is a for educators tab where I've written up some of my lesson plans and there's going to be more to come uh, in the future. Uh, But hopefully, um, yeah, definitely check me out there and um, contact me if you like.
0: Yeah, it's great stuff. I had such a blast talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. And listen, we'll talk again soon for sure. My best to your husband and to Dimitri, uh, who is a very important part of the Floater Toolkit, by the way. I won't give it away to listeners yet, but you'll have to check it out to see who Dimitri is. But um, it's a handsome fella. It's a handsome fella. Good times. All right. Thanks so much. And uh, listeners, we will be back next week with another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at MadScientistpod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Don't you know that you're a grown up?